Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. When you think about Motown, one of the first groups that comes to mind is The Temptations. Their string of hits and chart success is absolutely amazing, with 43 songs making the top 10 between the 60s and the 90s, including 14 number one R&B hits. They've racked up nine Grammy nominations, four Grammy wins, 12 Tony nominations for their Broadway smash musical Ain't Too Proud, and have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, and the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. Before the pandemic hit, I sat down with two members of The Temptations, founder Otis Williams and Ron Tyson, to hear their incredible story about how the group came together and all their massive success. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My name is Pete Ganbarg. I run A&R for Atlantic Records out of New York. Tonight is a very, very special occasion where we are able to bring to you directly two of the most iconic performers of all time in, in musical history. So without further ado, I am thrilled to announce and bring out two members of the incredibly famous, worldwide, sensational, all-time greats, Otis Williams and Ron Tyson of The Temptations. How's everybody doing? All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We are absolutely honored to have both of you. This is Otis Williams. Hi. Otis is the original founding member of The Temptations. 1961, you said. 61. That's when your mom signed the contract for you because you weren't. March of 1961, up. yes, Motown. And Ron Tyson, the rookie, has only been with uh, The Temptations for 36 years now, is it? <laughs> and Ron, not only is he a 36-year member of The Temptations, but we are also honored to have two of Ron's children working here in L.A. at the Warner Music Group. Special shout-out to Raina, who has uh, Ron's daughter, who works upstairs at Atlantic, who's really helped us put this together today. So thank you, Raina. And Ron's son, Ryan Press, is the president of A&R for Warner Chapel, based out of L.A. And Ryan was supposed to be here, but he got stuck in London closing a deal. 
So we will send him our best. Again, thank you guys for joining us. So before we start, some stats. 37 singles reaching the Billboard Top 40 in the US, four of them reaching number one. On the R&B singles chart, 71 Top 40 singles, 14 number ones. I told you backstage earlier that before I got to Atlantic, I was working on a project and I reached out to you and your manager, Shelly, to ask you if you would participate. And not only did you guys participate, but you were so gracious and kind-hearted and nice in an industry that's not known for nice that I am like, I'm thrilled to be here tonight just for that, for the humanity of it. So thank you for that, for your professionalism. Glad we could help out. Yeah, absolutely. As many of you may know, there is an outstanding show running on Broadway in New York called Ain't Too Proud. And it is the story of the temptations based on Otis's memoir that he wrote around 30 years ago. And I was privileged to see it a few months ago and was really blown away. The show nominated last year for 11 Tony Awards in, in New York. Thank you. And, and one of the things that I really took away from the show after seeing it on Broadway was not only the music, which is iconic and legendary and every song that we talk about and listen to tonight is a song that I'm sure all of you know and all of you have known for your entire lives. You know, it's that iconic. But the story of how the band came together, how the group came together, and how 56 years later, you're here and the guys who you formed the group with aren't, and what happened to them. And it's really, it's a very profound, emotional show in terms of story, not just in music. So let's go back to the beginning of that story. Sure. Well, we started out in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Well, before that. Wow. Everyone associates the, the Temps with Detroit, but you're not from Detroit. No, I am originally from Texarkana, Texas. You know, like I've always said, I was just a little country boy running up and down the gravel roads with hot water cornbread in one hand and barefooted. You know, so to come from that to live the way I'm living now is a quantum leap. You know, and I give it all to God because I never had any inclination that uh, I would be doing something that I still enjoy doing and love doing and uh, reaching out to so many people, hopefully, you know, like these young people here, to enlighten them about uh, uh, the origin of Motown and the origin of uh, R&B, you know, and I saw it from day one. I was about uh, 14 years old, and at that time, we had moved to Detroit, Michigan, and it was... What, a, what brought you from Texarkana to Detroit? Well, you know, the great migration for blacks, you know, better jobs. Either they were moving to Detroit, Chicago, New York, or either out, out here to L.A., and at that time, it was in the very uh, early stages of uh, rock and roll. And they had these big, fabulous shows coming to the Fox Theater, which is, like I've always said, is the second largest indoor theater in America. Radio City is the first. And I was about 14 years old, and to see what five guys were doing on stage, and I looked behind me to see 5,000 plus people going crazy over what five guys was doing on the stage, that's when I said, oh, I want to do what they're doing. And seven years later, The Temptations was on stage, and uh, we were getting the same kind of, uh, you know, affirmation. Before you moved from Texarkana to Detroit, do you remember 
listening to music back in Texarkana? Sure. Being raised by grandmothers, see, grandmothers don't play. <laughs> no, they whip that honey boy when you get out of line. And mine didn't allow no, uh, well, in fact, wasn't any uh, uh, rock and roll at that time. I mean, I grew up listening to Mahalia Jackson and the Swan Silvertones gospel. You know, that's what I was steeped on until we moved to Detroit. And then, uh, like I said, when we moved to Detroit, you know, you start hearing about the, the Roy Hamiltons, the Frank Sinatras, the Elvis Presleys. Yeah, you know, and then the great groups, you know, uh, the Munglos, Flamingos, Spaniels, you know. Uh, uh, so I was influenced by that after I moved to Detroit. When did you start your own, your own group? I started my own group after seeing those guys on stage, uh, you know, doing what they were doing, impressing 5,000 plus people. I started going for a group hunt, you know. Uh, by that, I mean, I started trying to find guys that wanted to have the same kind of focus that I had. Went through the change of different guys, you know, I guess the metamorphosis of going, going, going until I moved to the west side of Detroit. And that's when I really started looking out with finding uh, the guys that would really become part of the Temptations. And uh, I had heard Melvin, the bass singer. Melvin I, Franklin. Uh, yes, yes, uh, one of the Blue. best in the business. Blue. And Melvin, <laughs> Melvin was about uh, 16 years old. And I was 17, and I heard Melvin. Were you guys in high school together? Uh, yeah, we were for a minute. And then he left Northwestern, which is the high school I attended, and he went to North Northern. But uh, when I heard him sing with this group called the Voice Masters, and he started off with the boom, boom, he was 16 years old. And I said, the Voice Masters only had four. Where did they get this guy singing bass like that? And I was out on a quest to try and find him. And as fate would have him, I'm walking down, see, the part of Detroit that I lived uh, on, if they did not know you on 12th Street, they clean your plow. Oh yeah, clean your plow mean they whoop your, yeah, your behind parts. Uh, yeah, and as fate would have it, I'm walking down Woodrow Wilson, which ran parallel to 12th, and I saw Melvin. I said, well, I'll be, that's what I'm looking for, because the bass singer that I had, Art Walton, he decided to quit, go back to school or what have you. So, we had a contract offer. So I saw Melvin, and just like the play said, I said, hey man, I want to talk to you. Melvin thought I was in a gang, because I had the, the leather jacket and the slick back hair and, and the white shoes, but everybody in the neighborhood said, oh, Otis, Otis ain't no, I'm not part of no gang, he want to sing. So as I'm walking down Woodrow Wilson, I saw Melvin, and I said, hey brother, I want to talk to you. Like in the play that you saw, Melvin crossed on the other side of the street. I crossed on the other side of the street. Melvin crossed back on the other side. I did the same thing. I said, hey, man, hold up. I want to talk to you about singing. So he stopped panting. Oh, I thought you want to beat me up. And I said, no, no, I have a contract offer, and I would love for you to be part of my group because you have a hell of a bass uh, on you. And he said, okay, well, you have to talk to Mama Rose. Now, Mama Rose was his mother. I said, okay. So we turned around and walked all the way back to Claremont, which is where Melvin lived. And like the play that you saw, Melvin said, you have to go over and talk to Mama Rose. I'm going to hide behind the tree. <laughs> Melvin hid behind the tree. I crossed the street, knocked on the door. Mama Rose came, and I told her that, uh, you know, I have a group, I have a contract, and I would love for uh, your son to be with me. So she looked me up and down, elevator eyes, and she said, okay, you seem to be a nice enough boy. My son can sing with you, but you take care of my baby. 
I said, yes, Mama Rose, uh, I will do just that. And Melvin and I were together from 16, and he passed when he was 55, so we were together from all that time, you know, one of the best bass singers uh, God made. Thank you. I think if I remember correctly, there's a scene in the show where she says, you can stop hiding behind that tree, Melvin. <laughs> she did. She actually <laughs> said that. Did you get any grief being from the South, from the people who were like a Southerner coming up to, to Detroit? No. Everyone accepted you as, as one oh, of yeah. those? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, like I said, that was part of uh, black history back then, you know, moving from the South where we can move, uh, you know, to Detroit, Chicago, L.A., uh, to get better jobs, you know. So, no, I, I, we never caught any flack. My father, my stepfather actually worked at Ford's. When I would watch him get up every morning about 4, 4.30 in the morning, and, you know, in Detroit, the weather can be crazy cold. And I, one morning, I stood in the window, and I watched him. His guys came by to pick him up to take him to Ford's. And I made up in my mind right then, I said, I'm not going to Ford's. <laughs> just like in the miniseries, I said, oh, I'm not doing that. You know, because uh, I just felt as though there was a better way of doing things rather than going to Ford's. So one day, we, like in the movie, I told him, I'm not going to Ford's, because I was set for singing. As fate would have it, we met up with this lady named Jenny Mae Matthews, and we started recording. Was that The Distance? The Otis Williams and The Distance. And uh, you, we, you guys had a local hit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was such a hit that Mr. Gordy, we were on stage performing, and uh, they kept calling us back, meaning my group. And the stage was as such that I could see whoever would come in and out. And so we sang and doing our thing, and I said, oh, that Mr. Gordy was smoking the miracles. So when we finally were able to come off stage, I'm standing right next to Mr. Gordy, and he's watching, I'm watching the miracles, and they had Shop Around, which was big at the time. And Mr. Gordy said, Otis, I like the sound of your group. You got a big record here. We had to go to the little boys' room. And that's when he gave me his uh, card. He said, if you should leave where you are, come see me. I'm starting my own company, Motown. And as fate would have it, Johnny May sold the master to a larger company, Warwick Records. Was that Come On? That was Come On. She said, well, you guys are going to really have a big hit now because it, it'll go all over America. So, yeah, I said, oh, well, great, great. But as she was telling me this, she was standing in front of me, and she was counting out a whole lot of $100 bills. She just just peeling them off, just peeling them off. I said, oh, yeah. Well, I said, well, uh, Johnny, don't we get some royalties? And she looked at me, and she stopped, and she said, oh, you're not getting any of this money. This is my money. I said, yeah, okay, but I wrote the song. Don't I get something for writers? She said, you're getting kind of smart there, Otis. I'll tell you what, if you don't like it, you can leave. And that's when I said, I said, well, fine, we'll leave. She said, well, I'll take back the car. And she had a car with Otis Williams and the distance on the side. I'll take back the uniforms and all that. I was 19 years old then. I said, well, fine, take that. We're young. We'll start somewhere else. I had Barry Gordy's card. And I called Barry. And Barry said, well, talk with Mickey Stevens. He was the A&R man for Motown. So at the time when we were the distance, it was Al Bryant, Melvin Franklin, James Crawford, Richard Street, and myself. But I lost 
a couple of guys, Richard Street and James Crawford. So Eddie Kendricks came back from Birmingham, and he had heard that I was looking for a tenor. He was in the primes, right? Him and Eddie, Eddie, Paul, and Paul and, uh, Kel, and they broke up. I said, man, you're right on time. I need a first tenor because I have a label that want to sign us. That's when the real temptations came together, which was Al Bryant, Melvin Franklin, Paul Williams, Eddie Kendricks, and myself. And we went to Motown and recorded. And, Under uh, the name The Elgins. That's true. We were The Elgins until we found out there was another group called The Elgins. But I saw it on a piece of paper. I just saw it, it was um, a watch. So I said, okay, we'll call ourselves The Elgins. But that wouldn't work. So one day, uh, the Timpson, we were standing out in front of Motown, and a young man by the name of Bill Mitchell, who was uh, one of the uh, executives there, and uh, he said, well, what are we going to call you guys? You know, we start kicking out names, and uh, uh, it will say it, The Temptations. I said, I like that. And I asked Paul Williams. I never will forget what Paul said. I said, Paul, what you think? He said, Otis, a name is whatever we make it. So Bill called up to Motown Legal Department, which they had one, two, three buildings that they turned into a recording company and uh, office building. So he hollered up the legal department. He said, put on the contract, The Temptations. And that was uh, 1961. We have been rolling ever since. Wow. So how many Motown acts predated The Temptations signing there? Smokey was there. Smokey was there. Wasn't that many uh, springs? They were calling the Supremes and us the no-hit uh, wonders because uh, <laughs> we had recorded about seven or eight singles before we got the way you do the things you do. And now, like I was telling one of your executives, that it's unheard of now because the companies today, if you do not happen with one or two, maybe they'll stretch you to three, or you can forget it. Barry let us record up to seven or eight uh, singles, but he always said, it's not the ex fault, it's us the company. We got to find the right material for it to happen. True enough, Smokey came up with the way you do the things you do. So when Smokey called us to come to do uh, the way you do the things you do, January, cold winter night, we walked up to Motown. So we got in the studio and Smokey sat at the piano and we were sitting around. He passed out the lyrics. I'm reading the lyrics and said, got a smile so bright. Could have been a candle holding you so tight. Could have... I said, it's some hokey stuff here, man. I said, good luck. <laughs> really? We went in and we recorded it. And when I came back into the control room with Smokey, I looked at Smokey, I said, Smoke, you a bad man. I said, because you took something that's nonsense and made it sense. Well, you could have been anything that you wanted to. Decides that Eddie is going to take lead on that song. Smokey. Because Smokey being a tenor himself, and he just heard it for Eddie. Now, Smokey told us how that happened was uh, when he was with the Miracles, they were riding down the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And I guess singing in the car, you know, and somebody must have said something. Smokey said, that's a song. So he said, Otis, y'all, when we got back, we had to record this on the temps. So, uh, Why do you think he wanted you guys to have it and not the Miracles? 
I guess he just heard the potential in us in comparison to uh, the miracles. And Smokey has always been in love with the harmonies that we would have because us being five Southern boys steeped on gospel, you know, uh, that was one of the things that Barry was impressed with because we sound so gospel-like. So there's real know. church in, in oh, the Oh, absolutely. Everything that we would do had that, that earthiness of church. Next thing you know, once they released it, uh, it was jumping. They would call and say, oh, this is your number one in Chicago. Your number two in uh, New York. I mean, the numbers was just going up. Do you remember down. hearing it on the radio for the oh, first man. time? Oh, man, yes, I do. I almost fell over my own feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great thing uh, to hear yourself after you've had so many uh, singles out before, you know, and then to hear something that is really clicking. They couldn't call you the no-hit temptations anymore. Absolutely. <laughs> that stopped right then and there. But the one that really, I must say, I loved it, but I got sick of hearing it. It was played so much. It was My Girl. Man, please. <laughs> God. My Girl was released December of 1964. 1965 at the Apollo Theater, Barry Gordy sent us a telegram congratulating us. Number one record, sold over a million copies. The Beatles also sent us a uh, telegram congratulating us. And everywhere we would go, that's all we heard. I mean, like I said, I love my girl, but after a while, I said, Jesus Christ, come on, y'all. You know, can play something else. But, you know, I'm not going to complain because it'd be like me crying with a loaf of bread under my arms, you know. So uh, what's, be, what's fascinating to me about that is that both the way you do the things you do and My Girl were both massive hits yes. in the same year in 1964. That's right. 1964 was also the year that the Beatles came to America. That's true. So you, you're on the radio, they're on the radio. Right, right. They're sending you telegrams that yes. had to be crazy. I was. Today, I still have that uh, telegram in my home as well as Barry Gordy's, as well as one from uh, the Supremes. Yeah, you know, some things you just don't the way, you know, those are the three that I always keep. So we talked on the way you do the things you do that Smokey heard Eddie as a tenor yes. singing that. But on My Girl, it was Dave. We were appearing at a very popular club in Detroit called the 20 Grand, and Smokey came out to see us. At the risk of sounding egotistical, we set the place on fire. <laughs> you know, so when we came off, we were getting ready to leave because we did two shows there. Smokey came with Claudette. He was married to Claudette at the time. And he said, man, you guys are something else. Ooh, we. Then he stopped and he looked at David Ruffin. And he said, I have a song for you. And us being young and cocky, man, bring it on. We can sing anything. <laughs> you know, and the Miracles and the Temps, we had to go to the Apollo to uh, perform. And in between the shows at the Apollo, Smokey would call us to his dressing room and we would sit around and uh, uh, he taught us, him and I must give credit to Ronnie White because Ronnie White is also, yeah, co-writer. So when we uh, came back to Detroit, we went in the studio and recorded My Girl and uh, history was made even more so. I guess And that song not only went number one R&B, but that went number one pop, Hot 100, everything, top of the top. It was put in the Rolling Stone. Um, top songs of all time. Of all time, yeah. yes. And that bong, do, 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 is one of, I think number five, is one of the most noted uh, uh, guitar licks. licks. Yeah. What do you remember about the band? Oh, Funk Brothers? Man, please. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, like I said, see, I'm known for some of my crazy sayings. Uh, the Funk Brothers were funkier than the unwashed armpit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that one I've never heard before. Oh, look, they used to play different clubs around Detroit. You know, and Mickey Stevens, I must give him credit, he was the A&R man for Motown, and he would go around these different clubs, and he would say, man, come to uh, this company starting up, and we need you to, you know, to record. Brothers was a cold piece of work, you know, I mean, James Jameson, um, uh, Benny on the drums, Robert White on guitar, to see those guys, you know, and when I go to Motown, even uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I was there, and I was staying, you would go down about four or five steps. The room was no way as large as this. They called it the snake pit. To look at it, you said, I was standing there even as of last week or so when I was there, I said, all of those hits came out of that little room. It is an amazing place to see. If you ever get a chance to go to Detroit, do go by and see Motown Records. They have a map where every place on this globe, people have been from Russia, Iceland, all over uh, the world. They have been to Motown. We've driven by Motown uh, on Sundays. There's a line outside waiting to go in and uh, see Motown and buy paraphernalia and just to hear history. Barry's bedroom where he used to live uh, at uh, Hitsville is still upstairs and they have it roped off where you, you know you, you can walk by and see it, but you can't go back there. Like Graceland. Yeah, you're right. Can't go right. in Elvis. Can't go in, but you can see yeah. what Barry and his family <laughs> stayed at the time. So it's a very historical place. And as I look back, that was a place in God's infinite wisdom. Like I've always said when I'm being in an interview, Motown is not a happenstance company. God brought that little two-story family flat together during the 60s, which has been called the most tumultuous decade within the last hundred years. All kind of crazy things was happening there. And we were a part of that. But to see this little two-story family flat that housed all those talented people to make such a profound impact on the world today, that was meant to be. Because we were on a world tour in 75. And I ran across three soldiers that had just finished, you know, because the Vietnam War was winding down. So I'm walking around Hong Kong, man, Bruce Lee, I'm all that kind of guy. These guys stopped me and said, Mr. Williams, we don't mean to bother you, but we have to let you know what you all meant to us while we were fighting in the jungle. So I'm standing there, and as they were running it down, they started crying with the thing of, you do not know what you all's music meant to us while we were fighting in the jungle. And when we would come back to the camp, first thing they would say, we want to hear the temptation. We want to hear Motown. So as they were telling me this, I'm standing there and I man up. I'm crying right along with them. Yeah, I mean, because to know the profound effect that what music can have on people, don't take it for granted. We have witnessed that music can go and do certain things that politicians cannot do. We've been a part of that. You're all in a very wonderful business. Don't take it for granted. That is true. It reaches out where a lot of people can't even touch. So when you guys were making music with Smokey, right. 
there was another producer at Motown who really, really, really wanted to work with you guys. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. And his name was Norman Whitfield. Right. And Norman Whitfield went to Barry Gordy one day and said, you got to give me a shot. And what did Barry say to him? Just so happens I was there when uh, Norman, see, Norman was very aggressive, uh, very egotistical, but I loved the brother, you know, because he had a good heart. But when it was something that he believed in, come hell or high water, he's going to do it. So just uh, so happened Barry was coming into his office. It must have been by like one or two uh, in the afternoon. And uh, Norman had recorded uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. But Smokey was consistent with the hits on us, you know. Uh, so, so Norman said, Mr. Gordon, Mr. Gordon, I bear, now you call him Barry, Barry, I got a hit on the temps, I got a hit on the, you know, you, you, you got to let me have the next release. We had just finished recording Get Ready. So Barry stood there and he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Since how this Smokey has had all the hits so far, I'm going to let him uh, have the release to Get Ready. But he said, if Get Ready do not crack the top 10, you got the next release. So Okay, Get Ready did real good, but it didn't crack the top 10. Ain't Too Proud to Beg came out, and man, when it came out, we were with Norman Whitfield for about eight or nine years of hit after hit after hit after hit. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg, please, for your sympathy, I don't mind, cause you mean that much to me. listening to it now you can hear there's some anguish in David's vocal like he's really pleading yeah was that something that came from him came from Norman no, came from no that, that's just Norman I mean that's just David that's how he David said. had that grit in him all you know before David joined the group uh, he had about three or four singles out you know before he can't became a member of the temps and I could hear that that thing in his voice then you know it, Back then, we used to do record hops. Record hops is where, as when a recording company would release a record, you would have to go around to the leading disc jockeys in that city and do record hops for them to continue to play the record. And I saw David Ruffin, uh, and he was known for, he would do his move, he would throw the microphone straight up in there and drop down. It was a wonder to see, you know, but I never would imagine the brother would end up being with us. But my group, we were so popular in Detroit that one day, uh, Dave and I, we were uh, hanging together, and uh, he said, man, I want to sing with your group. And I said, you kidding me? He said, no. He said, y'all are the, I ain't going to say shit, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I was trying to use the acronym, but anyway, he said, I want to sing uh, with the Timps. I said, really? I said, as great as you. He said, man, it don't mean nothing if I'm not with the right people. David joined my group, and we made history. You know, until things start going crazy. 
So the way that Smokey would hear Eddie for the way you do the things you do, or, or David for My Girl, or Eddie for Get Ready, did Norman gravitate towards David because of that grit in David's voice? Well, Norman was very flexible. He, he would record um, on David as well as he had hits on uh, Eddie. You know, please return your love, just my imagination. You know, so it was whatever he felt the song needed that he would call uh, for the lady. He did some hits on Paul Williams. I was just a quiet glue, you know. I just, you know, was there just to make sure everything stayed together. What did they call you, the baritone in the middle? Yeah, the baritone, second tenor, sometime first. I did a little lead, but at, when we first got together, I was one of the lead singers. It's funny, as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, wow, I know I'm losing you. Rod Stewart covered that yes, later. He did. Ain't Too Proud to Beg, The Stones covered that. What was it like hearing all these, like, English white guys singing your song? Oh, that's the biggest compliment you can have. Oh, yeah, when you start getting pop artists like Rod Stewart and the Rolling Stones doing something like what we made, you know, blacking and what have you, oh, man, you, you can't beat that. I mean, be, that means your record has become really uh, accepted worldwide. You know, and Rod Stewart, when they had us in Rolling Stone top 500 acts of all time, he did the breakdown about the Temps because he loved the Temptations. You guys did a record together. Yes, the we Motown did. Motown song. That's right, Motown song. Yeah, yeah, it was you a top, top 10, of it. Right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Another it. interesting thing about the last few songs we heard about I Know I'm Losing You and Ain't Too Proud to Beg is Norman's co-writer, one of the co-writers on, on those songs was Eddie Holland. Yes. And Lamont Dozier was here a few months ago with us doing one of these and oh, yeah. had a great time with him. So when did Eddie stop working with Norman and then Barrett Strong started working with Norman and you guys went on another run? Well, I think that really would depend on what Norman uh, felt, you know, because I, I noticed, uh, but he would still always use Barrett because we had Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Just My Imagination, and a few others with uh, Barrett Strong. But uh, I think uh, Norman just felt another kind of uh, thing. You know, Eddie Holland is a lyric master, you know, so he was known for making great stories because I know I told him, I, I was sitting listening to whatever he would do on the Four Tops of the Supremes. I said, man, you something else with the lyrics. You know, he said, oh, this, you know, I just write what I feel, but Norman evidently heard that song needed some of uh, Eddie Holland. At a certain point, Norman changes up his sound to fit not only like the, the modern day version of the group, but also what's going on in the world. So talk about Cloud Nine and kind of the birth of Psychedelic Soul. Yeah, I was telling uh, Gamma, Kenny Gamma, who's a dear friend of mine, I think he has a relative here. And I was Where's telling- Chuck? Hey, uh, Hi, Chuck. Yes, yes. Yeah, Chuck. Well, Kenny Gamma and I, we were in New York City uh, and um, him and I were talking. So as we were talking, the radio was on, and then all of a sudden we heard So it cut into our conversation. I said, man, who in the hell is that? You know, we hadn't heard nothing like that. And Kenny said, I don't know, the show is different. We finished the gig that we had in New York, flew back to Detroit, 
And I told Norman, and at that time, Dennis Edwards was just joining the group. Dennis Edwards, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. I said, Norman, uh, there's a new group out there. They have something that's pretty different. You know, maybe we should try it. He hadn't heard it at the time. And uh, that group was? Sliding the Family Stone. Mm -hmm. So Norman, uh, we went out of town and came back in. Because when I first mentioned it to him, you know, Norman was using all kind of expletives. You know, I don't know, you know, he was just cussing a cat on it. I said, okay. We came back in town. We went in and recorded Cloud Nine. And like I said, the temps, we were spoiled. I mean, because everything that we recorded was jumping in the charts straight away. So I would call up the promotions and ask, okay, where we at? Oh, this we kind of, you know, it's a little slow. You know, this is different. I would call the next week, where we at? Well, we slowly picking up stations, you know, a little bit. So I'm starting to get kind of worried. So I called about the third or fourth week. Man, they said, we cannot keep it in the, uh, in the stores. You know, it was running away, selling. You know, I guess our fans said, so, okay, the temps are doing something different. People we have like to it. catch up with these Yeah. And we were the ones that won the first Grammy for Motown and, and the temps. Uh, it was the Temptations. That's obviously a different sound for the Temptations. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it changed us. Uh, in a different sense, good sense, because like I said, we won our first Grammy. So from the early, like 64 to 68, you guys are doing a lot of national television too. You're on American Bandstand, you're on Ed Sullivan. What are your memories of that? And I tell you, when we used to do Ed Sullivan, that was one of the few shows that you had better be on point. By that I mean, whenever you would see Ed Sullivan, that was live. If you were to make a mistake as far as choreographically or harmony-wise, uh, it wasn't that, okay, well, one of the temps messed up, let's do it over again. Now, none of that. They would do a safety in the event that something really technical would go wrong. But other than that, whenever we were on, and you tell my brother said was sweating a pound of flesh because we did not want to make a mistake. Detroit was shut down whenever a Motown artist was on Ed Sullivan because Ed Sullivan, for blacks in particular, to be on that, that was a big ado. You know, so uh, uh, it was wonderful uh, memories because Ed uh, uh, Sullivan uh, enjoyed it so much that we did his show 13 different times. Wow. Yeah. I, they released a video of all the showings that, uh, and I have it, and I could not believe that we were on that that many times, but scary thing to do. You know, because like I said, you can't make no mistakes either. However many millions of people that would be seeing, you messed up. Was it ever a challenge for the group to stay relevant to the original urban audience while still crossing over to a more pop, mainstream white audience? Or did you guys just do your thing? And we just did our thing. That's why Barry called the sound of young America. He, he wasn't... Uh, just, you know, keeping it just for black. He wanted to sell across the board. And, uh, because you were making standards records at the same time, right? In a mellow mood and, sure. and things like that. Well, reason being for that, they were grooming us. Like I said, when we perform now, see, the beautiful thing about Motown was we had to go to school. These companies today, they're not going to spend that kind of money to send you to school. We would have to be at artist development at 10 o'clock in the morning, would be there to five and six o'clock in the evening. We had wonderful people around us, like Harvey Fuqua, who used to sing with the Moonglows. Maurice King was our vocal coach. Charlie Atkins was our choreographer. Johnny Allen was the pianist. And they would sit and teach us all these here songs because they said, Temps, we want you guys to be able to command big dollars whether you get a hit record 
ever get a hit record again. They would teach us things like uh, I, I tell everybody when we perform, four things that we were taught never discuss with your audience. Do not talk about politics. Do not talk about religion. Do not talk about money. And do not talk about who you make love to. Yeah, that's what, but the audience would give a, a applause on that because if you want to lose record sales or having to call you every name except the child of God, talk about politics. They cuss you out because you're going to say something wrong to somebody that might be pro and we might be con. Then another thing uh, he told us about when you leave your home and you close that door behind you and you're on the outside of the door, that's not your time anymore. We said, really? Why is that? He said, because you belong to the public. If you're not feeling well and they want to say, we want to take a picture, we want to talk to you, you have to be ingratiating enough to accommodate them. Or either they're going to say, oh, you stuck up. We're not going to buy your records. He said, but when you come home and you close that door behind you, that's your time. So they taught us a lot of wonderful things that we still adhere to today, and I try and pass it on to the guys. So it's that's really like going to school. Oh, it was going to school. No, it wasn't just about... That, that's something that we don't do for our artists now. I know. I know. Not a, that... Well, I don't mean to say in a put-down way, but no, companies, like I said, I read a lot. I talk to Kenny Gamble and a lot of people in these companies. That takes money. They don't want to spend that kind of money. We were in New York when we were, Motown was in New York, and a young lady, she said, Mr. Williams, we would like for you to come and talk to our artists, you know, tell them about being in show business because she knew about us being on time, you know. And I said, they don't want to talk to me. She said, why you say that? I said, because I'm going to go straight for what I know. So I said, no. And she said, you know, you're right. Whatever artist that they had, and this was Motown in New York, they had booked the studio time for them. They rehearsed for about four to five minutes. They called Motown, tell me, uh, would you send a limousine back for us? We tired. Now, when we rehearsed, we started at 10 in the morning to 6 in the evening. That's why we are able to do what we do today, because we went to school. She said, no, these artists, they don't want that. They want quick fix, and then they ghost. You know, so, so if you're starting at 10 in the morning, something you and I talked about earlier backstage is mm -hmm. you were always on time. Yes. So when I asked you how you became the leader of the Temptations. Jenny Mae Matthews put that yoke on my back. You know, little did I know um, by me being on time. And I don't know where I got that. My mother and father, you know, uh, they didn't stress it. I was always on time. So whenever Jenny Mae would call uh, time to come to her place to rehearse, if I couldn't find one of the guys that I knew uh, had a car, or if I couldn't find him, I would leave and I have enough time to be on time. So one day, I'm there waiting on Melvin and Richard and the rest of the guys, and Johnny May said, Otis, you're never late. So I got defensive. Well, Johnny May, you know you start. She said, no, no, hold up, brother, hold up. That's a good thing. She said, you be the group leader. And she put that yoke on my back, and I've been carrying it ever since from... That 56. Was 19, yeah, 56. it was 1960 when we were, because we signed with Motown in 61. Yeah, so, um, but I tell everybody about time because, look, you're judged by the time you keep or don't keep. So don't take time for granted because we can do a whole lot of things, but we can't stop time, and you're judged by time. So always remember that. So going back to the four things that you're not supposed to sing about, politics, religion. sex, religion, and money. And money. Yeah. But here we are in the tumultuous decade of the 60s that right. you're talking about. The most tumultuous decade yes, of the sir. last century. Yeah. And there are things as an artist that you want to talk about, right? 
So tell us the story of, of Norman Whitfield writing War. And you guys recording War, but War was not released as a single. No, Norman had recorded War by later on was released um, with uh, Edwin Starr, which was a number one record sold over a million copies. But, but you guys did the original version. We did the original. Paul was singing lead on it. Of innocent lives. War means tears in thousands of mothers' eyes. When the sons go off the fight and lose their life, I said, What is it good for? Absolutely not. Say it again. And Barry, I felt as though no, the temperature. Too political? Too political. Too political. And that was during the time of the Vietnam War. You know, but Barry didn't want to take that chance with us because we were selling humongous records, you know, without that. So he didn't want to take no chance on that. So, so when like, War came out and became such a big hit on Edwin, right? is that what led to Ball of Confusion? Not really. You know, I guess it's just Norman being Norman. He would just write however he felt, you know. But, but uh, once Barry heard Ball of Confusion, he was okay with that being a sin. Well, you know what Barry used to say? We had so many hits with Norman. Like I said, they used to have quality control meetings. Every Friday, go over everything that needs to be reconciled about Motown. And when our name came up, he said, uh, Norman and Temps, don't bother them. We leave them alone. They don't even have to be in the meeting because we're having hit after hit. See, quality control, when they would have the meeting, they would sit and I would hear them voting on whatever should be released. Now, Barry loved Smokey, but Smokey was late one day. And they had closed the door and locked Smokey out. And I'm sitting out there, smoking, bamming on, smoke, Barry, Barry, it's your boy, smoke. Barry didn't open that door. He was late. Uh, he was late. What's interesting about the hits that you guys were having in that era, I mean, if you think about everything that was crazy going on with Vietnam and the assassinations and everything happening in the late 60s, Ball of Confusion really fit. You know, did the audience accept it right away or would they say why are there temptations you know well, no, doing this no they accepted because it was like a form of escapism for them. you know i mean to hear the vietnam war and the the racial unrest and the women's lib and all kind of things that well, that's was a happening. very political lyric oh. vote for me and i'll set you free oh yeah yeah segregation determination demonstration integration They definitely was enjoying the temp so that, uh, yeah, they enjoyed the music that it was another form of uh, getaway. And then Norman is able to do ball confusion, but then flip it and come up with something as sweet as Just My Imagination. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Norman was that versatile. But it was just my imagination Running away with me I've always said Motown has had some of the 
best producers and songwriters of the Motown, Ashford and Simpson, you know, Holland of Jaholland, you know, Smokey. Smokey, you know. Norman Whitfield was the most innovative. See, Norman would step out of character. When you listen at HDH, Holland Dozier Holland, Ashford and Simpson, pretty much all this was love songs, straight ahead. We stepped out of the thing. Norman would go political, you know, and all that other. So we, we wasn't pigeonholed to just singing great ballads or up-tempo uh, love songs. You know, we would do other things, which made us uh, very unique in the sense of the other great Motown acts that uh, Barry had. And then he started extending his songs, right? Papa was a Rolling Stone, was oh, a 12-minute version. Yeah, yeah, that started after we did Cloud Nine. You know, he got crazy. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Wherever he let his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. Oh, Papa was a Rolling Stone, my son, yeah. Wherever he let his hat was his home. But it was fun after a while because, see, they could play it late in the evening because during the day they couldn't play the extended version because of the promotion for the commercials and whatever. But in the evening they had this format called Quiet Storm and they could play the long, a long version. long version. And did you guys get razzed because there would be minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes of music before the vocals came into the record? Somebody, I read something that uh, the Temptations were referred to as the Norman Whitfield Singers. We were over in Amsterdam, Holland, and uh, they sent me uh, a release of what was coming out on us. And when I read that, the, the writer said, yeah, uh, Norman Whitfield, he, he did it again with the Norman Whitfield singers. I popped the cork. <laughs> I got on the phone and I called, and uh, when we got back, I said, Barry, we worked too hard to lose our name because of this, because Norman was uh, elongating the intro with all that. I mean, okay, so it's good, but don't say we are the Norman Whitfield singers. And Barry agreed, that's when we changed from Norman, and our next big hit, was uh, an album called A Song For You, you know, so, uh, but it took that for us to- Song For You being the Leon Russell song. Uh, yeah. Donny right. Hathaway. Yeah, and Russell. a young man by the name of Jeffrey Bowen produced it. Jeffrey. Bowen. Mm-hmm. But there's still some hits that we haven't even gotten to. Your Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Just My Imagination, Masterpiece, all Norman Whitfield. Yes, they were. So, um, yeah. I, I read somewhere that the 12-inch the single that became so popular in the discos in the late 70s, this right. was really a forerunner of that. He kind of yeah. created and invented that. Yeah, yeah. Norman was very experimental that way. You know, uh, Like I say, he, he would step out of the norm, uh, which made him such a unique... Uh, producer, songwriter, because him and Barrett Strong did some uh, hell of a body of work, you know. So, uh, and uh, Barrett and I, we grew up together on the North End section of Detroit. So I knew Barrett. Barrett had uh, one of Motown's first hits with money. Oh, yeah, money. Yeah. Money, that's what I want. Everybody yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was a uh, very talented uh, performer as well as a songwriter. And good collaborator for Norman. Yes, he was. Moving into the 70s, when the group left Motown yes. and actually went to Atlantic. Yes, we did. A lot of people don't know that The Temptations recorded a couple of albums for Atlantic, which is, Ron, where you met the band for the first time? And how did you end up joining the group? We got a message in Philly that The Temptations were looking for another first tenor. And so I called L.A. and left a message for Otis that I knew of a guy who could possibly fit the mold. 
So he called me back. He said, hey, Ron, uh, I might need to talk to that guy that you're referring about, uh, you know. He said, well, who is it? And I laughed, you know. I said, well, oh, this is me. <laughs> and he, he laughed, you know. He said, well, let me uh, get back to you in a couple of days. So I figured he had to run a check on me and see if I was okay. And he called me in a couple of days and he said, um, well, can you meet me in Florida? And I was, you know, I was ready to go. And in Philly, it snowed about 15 inches of snow that day. So I couldn't get out for about three or four days. But when I got out and went to Florida, you know, they had to put me with the choreographer and see if I could dance, you know. They kind of knew that I could sing a little bit. And then once, once that was over, you know, he said, well, look, go home, pack your bags, and we'll see you on the road. And nice. That, there I am. 36 years later. There you go. So we were talking, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. We, we were talking earlier, how many temptations, Otis, have there been? Uh, 28. And Ron, you are? The 13th. But you are the two. second, yeah, he's and 13, but he's longest. two, because he's the second longest running member of the group. There's a, a bit in the show where the temps are, it's joke that the temps stand for temporary. That's right. Because, I mean, not, yeah. on, not only are guys coming in and leaving, but some guys come in, leave, come back, leave yeah, again. Yeah. You're firing guys, you're rehiring yeah, them. You're, yeah, I have They been, all want to come back after they leave. He's right, he's right. Yeah, even the great Ada Kendricks, David Ruffin at well, some point in time. There's a crazy story about David Ruffin being fired from the band ah. and then coming back on stage and jumping up and even when he was out of the band that, and, yeah. and taking the mic from Dennis Edwards and singing. And yeah, that happened in, uh, right outside of Tyson's hometown, Valley Forge. And uh, David, Dennis had just joined the group and the audience was going crazy over what we were doing. So David, I guess... He said, shoot, I want to get back in the group. So he jumped up on the stage, and he grabbed the mic from Dennis, and we were singing Ain't Too Proud to Be. But before that, we had a road manager named Don Foster. So Don was trying to stop David from getting up on the stage with us. David must have put his hand in fifth gear, and when he came around, he slapped Don so hard that his handprint was upside his face. And Don came to me, he said, Otis, I took that one for the team. If he hit me again, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> oh, it was there. Oh, it was some serious stuff happening out there. And uh, it didn't happen again because Don must have stood uh, about five, five, somewhere around there. So he wasn't that tall. And David, you know, all of us were six footers, you know. And, uh, but like I said, he slept Don so hard, you actually saw his handprint upside his face. So when you're starting a group, you probably just, you all start for the same reason, which is the love of music and the joy of singing. Oh yeah, same principle that Barry would tell you why he wrote songs, to make money and to get girls. Hmm. You know, my, but, PR, my PR said, oh, just don't say that because you know, you're living at such strange time, but hey, tr tell the truth, shame the devil. I mean, we wanted to sing because, uh, like I said, when I saw the girls going crazy at the Fox, what was happening on the stage, I said, I want some of that, yeah. <laughs> But you don't realize when you're putting the group together that there are going to be all these things that you yeah. couldn't even imagine. Drugs yeah. and violence yeah. and adultery and, you know, oh, yeah. all these things yeah. that, you know, the, the fact that some of your original bandmates, you know, came to real kind of unfortunate ends, you yeah. know, that you would never have, have thought. Yeah. That's life. 
you know, uh, like I tell Tyson and the guys, now we're in the process of looking for a fifth member. And I'm at the point now where I don't look for talent first. So when I first uh, told that when I was being interviewed, the guy looked at me kind of quizzical, like, what? You don't look? I said, no. I've been around talented people all my life. You know what matters most to me? The head and heart. You can have all the talent in the world. Excuse me, I'm going to say it real. If you're an asshole of a person, you're going to negate the talent. That's the truth. So remember that. And that's what I, I, I've had to deal with. So I'm looking for somebody. i got to know where your head and your heart is. I mean, it's crazy. When you think about the talent that David had mm-hmm. and then how his life ended, Right. It's really sad. Very sad. I mean, for him to be at the drug house and got lit up and they put him in the car and dumped him outside of the hospital and drove off for somebody that was so talented. And David, when he was straight, funny, funny, fun-loving. But it's a sad ending the way he ended up. And then, you know, you had such a special bond with Melvin, Ah. too. Well, what took Melvin out was uh, he had rheumatoid arthritis. And... uh, we were in Louisville, Kentucky, and Melvin was always uh, a prankster. So he called me before we went to do the show. Hey, oh, I can't get up. I can't move. So I'm thinking Melvin doing one of his. I said, oh, man, come on. We got to go do the show. No, bro, I can't move. I hurt. It hurts me to move. So anyway, we had it checked out, sent him to the hospital. They ran a battery of tests on him. Came back after we did the show. He had rheumatoid arthritis, 26 years old. That's what took Melvin out at 55. 26 years old. 26 years old. Uh, he had to take cortisone. So cortisone is a wonderful drug if you take it the way the doctors say you're supposed to take it. Melvin would double up on it at times uh, so he could do the show. Uh, Melvin also used to take gold shots. All this was for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And what it ended up doing, we were up in Foxwood, and when we would come out, and bow, we would bow holding each other's arm. And my right hand had Melvin's left arm. So as I'm bowing, his arm felt squishy. It didn't feel like solid, like when you grab somebody's wrist. So I'm bowing, I'm saying, what the hell? You know, and then we did the show and they took him to the doctor uh, there in Foxwood and uh, Connecticut. And Don Peake was our road manager. He said, oh, the doctor said, Melvin need to go home. He said, I, won't, I can't tell him. He, you're the only one that he'll listen to. I said, oh, if he got to go home, then I got to let him know he's got to go home. So I said, because we were going from there to D.C. to open up at the Wolf Trap. I said, Blue, you got to go home. The doctor said, you have to go home because you need to be taken care of. Oh, boy, I'm going to be all right. Come on, you can't do that. I said, Blue, we'll hold it down with four till you get straightened out. Melvin had it so bad that his arm started opening up. They had to let it heal open, then they would sew it back. The last album Melvin did, Ollie Woodson was in the group, and Ollie said, oh, look at Melvin's ankle. Melvin could no longer wear colored socks. He wore some white socks like that gentleman there. And Ollie said, look at his uh, ankle. Melvin started bleeding. Oh. We sent him home. Said, we'll hold it down, Melvin, till you get well, uh, well and come back. He had to go to the hospital, and uh, that was the last time I saw my friend. 
So arthritis is no joke. And if you have to take cortisone, take it the way the doctor said. Don't abuse it, because Melvin did that. It broke down his immune system. I went with him to uh, a nutritionist. She ran tests on him, and I'm sitting out there, and she said, Mr. Williams, would you join us in the room? Uh, I'd like to tell you something. So Melvin and myself and uh, the nutritionist, she said, it's five of you guys, isn't it? I said, yeah, well, it's fine. She said, well, whatever is floating around in there germ-wise, he will get it first. I said, really, why is that? She said, his immune system is shot. From the cortisone. From the cortisone. So if you take cortisone, make sure you take it the way the doctor said and leave it alone. Now, for the time being, it's a great release. It'll help you out. But you cannot abuse cortisone because it'll take you out, break your stuff down, and next thing you know, you're gone. Really sad. Before we wrap it up, you know, it's funny talking about these songs. You sure. know, there's so many more songs that oh, were hit absolutely. songs. We could be here all night. Treat her like a lady. All what night. do you think? All night? Okay. But some of, some of the accolades that the group has gotten, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2013, induction into the R&B Music Hall of Fame, first year 2013, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989 with a bunch of the original guys, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, just an incredible, incredible career that started, you know, with the cornbread on the side of the road in Texarkana <laughs> to, right. to here. Yeah. So, Congratulations and thank you for a life of music to both Ron and, and Otis. Thank you, you know, very much. Thank you. I'd like to say this right quick. Thank you. One of the highlights of Tyson and my career, uh, when I was only thus far black president was in power, we had the pleasure in the Oval Office, which is known as one of the most powerful offices in, uh, office in the world. You know what we're doing? We're singing Silent Night with President Obama. Wow. And, and he I sang the second verse. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I sound. told him, I said, man, you're tall enough, you look good enough, women will go crazy over you. You should be a temptation. <laughs> he said, no, 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 you tempt you, I'll do what you do. <laughs> so that was a highlight. Yeah. That's awesome. How did he sound on that second verse? Uh, I didn't want Otis to hear too much, but I ain't getting my job. <laughs> uh, no, he's got a sweet tenor. Thanks again to our special guests on today's episode, Otis Williams and Ron Tyson of The Temptations. Visit them online at temptationsofficial.com where you can get upcoming tour dates as well as links to their social media. Thanks very much for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.